Hey, this is your Houston Sports Talk host, Robert Land, with an unscheduled and extremely sad special podcast because this week, Astros fans and the baseball world lost a bigger-than-life legend. As most of you have heard by now, former Astros all-star pitcher J.R. Richard died at the age of 71 years old from COVID-19. The first Astros game I remember going to as a little kid, Jahar was on the mound. And as you can imagine, for little Robbie Land, seeing big six foot eight J.R. Richards standing on top of that mound in the Astrodome was an image you never forget. A few years ago, I was fortunate enough to interview him. Last year, I put out a throwback Thursday. Looking back at that interview, I figured this would be a perfect time to rewind and play it back for you. Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. The togetherness, the determination of the Houston Astros team this year was reflected in the way they were able to win that division title without that great pitcher, the superstar, Jay Rodney Richard. We jump into the time machine for Throwback Thursday, and this past Tuesday marked the anniversary of the sudden stroke of Astros legend J.R. Richard and the end of his major league career, he would never throw another pitch after July 14, 1980. He's without a doubt one of the biggest what-ifs in Astros history. And to open the show, you heard Howard Cosell referencing J.R. in the 1980 NLCS. We flash back to that to start things off. And, you know, anybody that watched him remembers J.R. Richard was one of the most intimidating pitchers in baseball. A few years ago... I caught up with him right after the release of his autobiography. And as you're about to hear in the interview, he was a little intimidating to me, too. Uh, He was a little tough for me. Not one of my favorite interviews, but to be fair to both of us, he wasn't feeling good when we spoke. His health still isn't the best, and he just wasn't having one of his better days when we met up. Before getting to my conversation with JR himself, you're going to hear a piece from Kenny Hand, who covered Richard for the Houston Post and Chronicle and told the story of how JR Richard ended up homeless only about a decade out from his Astros days. You're also about to hear from Enos Cabell, his former teammate and close friend. We'll close things out with the highlights of J.R. Richards' only all-star game start. But without any more fanfare, let's jump into the time machine and listen to Houston Sports Talk original co-host R.G. Seal with Kenny Hand. One of the things that I remember from the Houston Post is, is when you broke the J.R. Richard living under a freeway story, which ended up being on the front page of the paper. For those who don't recall this, can you explain how you came about this story and how J.R. Richard is doing today? Well, I just got a tip uh, that J.R. was doing poorly. And, you know, he had had a stroke in 1980 and um, was really never the same again. He, he tried to make a comeback, and he just never was quite physically to, able to make a comeback in the major leagues. And his his life kind of just slowly unraveled after that. And, you know, many people tried to help him. Enos Cabell was a close personal friend of JR's, but JR became kind of a little bit uh, distant from his friends and then ultimately he just winds up homeless. He had a bunch of financial problems and wound up homeless. And so I did this story on him, and I think it's one of the few times that I can honestly say I've done a story 
and you just sit there and you're uh, virtually tears in my eyes while I'm talking to Jr. It was really emotionally moving because I'd, I'd covered Jr. the prime of his career when he was arguably the best pitcher in baseball along with Nolan Ryan, certainly the most intimidating along with Nolan Ryan, and then to reach that stage of his life. I think once Jr. reached out to people, he found more people were willing to help him than he realized, and that kind of turned his life around. And I think he's, from all indications, and I haven't talked to him in a while, but I think he's doing relatively well now considering where he was those many years ago. What was it like to watch him pitch and be there, you know, first row seat to watch Jr. Richard on the mound during that time? Well, nobody could beat him. Uh, he would probably be in the Hall of Fame if he wouldn't have had the stroke. And, I mean, he would, he'd be another one of our players. Uh, but uh, he was just six foot nine and big and mean. And, I mean, he had pitches that nobody has these days. I mean, he had a 93, 94-mile-an-hour slider, and it, it, was, it had two different breaks to it, one hard and one like a curveball. And then he had a, almost a 100-mile-an-hour fastball, and he's 6'9". It wasn't pretty. <laughs> well, joining me now is Houston Astros sports legend J.R. Richard, one of the great pitchers in Astros history. And he just came out with a new book, Still Throwing Heat, his biography. And J.R., thanks so much for joining us. What made you finally decide after all these years to, to do a biography? How did the whole thing come about for you? Well, I've been had a lot of people ask me questions about why you don't have a book out, why you don't have a book out. Well, the reason I didn't have a book out at that time, it wasn't time. And I think through some of the ordeals that I've gone through and I've went through, to meeting the people to do this, everything would come together. And I looked at it as being part of time. It was time, time was right, time was right. You grew up in a little town called Vienna in Louisiana. You talked in the book about what you would do as a kid that you think helped gain your famous arms. Can you talk a little bit about what were some of the things that you were doing as a kid that you think really developed and built up that, that arm that everybody got to see with the Astros? Well, I don't know what a lot of people think. I think what I'd done was, uh, I guess you can equal, equal out to long toss, but my thing was I used to throw all the time. Well, I was one of my main things in the country was killing birds and killing rabbits with rocks. Your family, you guys didn't grow up uh, with a bunch of money. Can you describe your childhood and what your parents did for a living? What, what, what was the circumstances with you growing up in Vienna? I think it was just a normal childhood as far as, you know, being back in the country. We was um, we raised our own food, our own crops, uh, our own meat. Pretty self-sufficient in the country. Give me a story that kind of best explains the family and um, what you grew up with. What kind of encapsulates that whole time for you? Well, I think what really encapsulates that is being as one family, being together in all things. And I would say doing uh, doing a lot of things together. And what, one of my main things was church. And in the country was church. And that was one of the main aspects that we kept, you know, well, one of the main ingredients, I would say, that we kept family together. Because we all believed in the same God. And we all worshiped the same God. It doesn't make sense to ask God for something. Ask God for something, and you don't ever worship him for anything. And the religion would definitely take a bigger role later on in your life. We'll talk, to the, talk about that in a little bit. You were a quarterback on the Lincoln High Bears. You won the state championship your junior year. You're also a punter. You averaged 48 yards per punt. Great basketball player. 
remind everybody how good you were at basketball. That was something that you were pretty serious about, and, and, and there was potential there, wasn't there? Yes, it was. I think I could have gone pretty much anywhere I would, would have choose to go at that time. I had like 250 basketball scholarships alone to go anywhere in the country that I wanted to, but the major, my major turning point was the signing bonus when the Houston Astros knocked up on my door and uh, offered me a signing bonus to play baseball. So that was the turning point. Yeah, you averaged 35 points, 22 rebounds. You thought of yourself a little bit, maybe Magic Johnson, because you said you were a really good passer, and Willis Reed was another guy that you, you liked a lot growing up? Willis Reed was a relative of mine. I didn't really compare myself with anyone. I want to be the first. I don't want to be the second, because when you compare yourself with someone, you can only be second best. <laughs> well, also another another person that uh, grew up in the area in Ruston, from what I understand, was a guy named Fred Dean, yeah. and a lot of people remember him. He was a great NFL player. Tell me, tell me a little bit about your relationship, or did you get to know Fred Dean? I don't know Fred Dean that well. Just in high school, I met Fred Dean. Um, he used to play baseball with myself when, uh, with the, with the Lincoln High School Lincoln High Barrels, and uh, he and this guy named uh, Woodard each used to get on the goal line and run fast as they can and run to each other at the 50-yard line. They were a hoot, but I see he turned out okay. I I went to Louisiana a couple of times to meet him and never did get get a chance to meet him at all. Well, you're a great football player, like we said as well, so just a great all-around athlete. Uh, We just finished up with the the Baseball Hall of Fame speeches not too long ago, and and one of the things that John Smoltz, one of the uh, Hall of Famers, was talking about was the importance for young guys, he feels like they need to play all of these sports and not get caught up in one sport. It's better for your arm. You see a lot of the Tommy John surgeries these days. The guys are having to do that. Is that something that as you watch baseball these days and, and what you went through, you think it's it, it helped you out as a player to, to play a lot of different sports? I think it helps your ability for your coordination and, and your agility is concerned. You're never one fragmented. You're just all over the place. You're individualizing everything. And you have to use that that concept and your ability, which require different thinking, different atti- different mindset, and different attitude set. One of the guys that was a big hero for you growing up is Bob Gibson. Uh, Gibson was a great pitcher, but also he he wasn't afraid to go inside. What made you love Bob Gibson, and how did that emulate in the type of baseball player that you were? Well, Bob Gibson was one of a kind, as you know as well as I in baseball. And uh, at that time in the country, we didn't have a TV, we had a radio. So I used to, my enjoyment was watching him, listening to him on the radio. It was sounding pretty good as he was the best. And uh, what I liked about Bob, one of the major things I liked about Bob Gibson is that he didn't fear. There was no fear there. You get the call to the bigs. Your first game, you face the legendary Willie Mays. You strike him out three times. But you say in the book you wouldn't even have recognized him if he walked into the park that day because you didn't have a TV growing up, so so you'd never actually got to see Willie Mays play. The first time you saw Willie Mays play was when you struck him out your first game? Had no idea about Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, Bobby Barnes, and the people that was in the the, the uh, San Francisco Giants lineup at that time. I just My main thing was just going out doing the best that I can. I was being pitched a game, and I was being paid to pitch a game, so I – my point was just to be the best that I could be at all times. When you walk out on the mound for the first time in a major league game, what was that like? What was the feeling like? What do you remember about that day? Well, this is new, and uh, the feeling was, uh, I don't know what, you know, what is expected of me. I'm just going to go out and do the best that I possibly can do. 
you also strike out Bobby Bonds twice in that game. Your first roommate was Astros pitcher Don Wilson. He's great pitcher through two no hitters and then lost to this mysterious death at age 29. And you, you talk about, a lot about that in the book and what you know your friendship was like with, with Wilson. What was he like and what kind of a relationship did you have with Don Wilson? Tell, me, tell us a little bit about Don Wilson because a lot of Astros fans don't, don't remember a whole lot. He's uh, from another generation for a lot of people, and they've heard about him, but they don't know much about him. Well, I think Don Wilson was kind of a hard-nosed guy, and he, but he was, had, had passion about the game. And one thing that I admired about Don is that uh, when I first when I came up to Houston, he took me under his wing and he showed me a lot of ropes. The first game in the San against the San Francisco Giants, he was my tutor, or my mentor, would you say. We hung out like that, but that is some of the greatest feelings I have of the man because he was a real man. I remember you posed, and it's on the book, actually. You posed for one of the more famous photos in the sporting news. You held eight baseballs in your hand at one time, which a lot of people were just amazed by. Tell the story, if you can, about, about how that came about. What do you remember about that, that uh, photo and, and doing that? Well, it wasn't anything special. I think I was coming down to get ready to work out. And a photographer at, for, photographer at that time, I can't think of the name of hand, told me to just go ahead and see how many baseballs I could put in, my one, in one hand. And he took the picture of it, and that was it. Yeah, very iconic photo. You, you led the league in wild pitches three times, walks three times, with all the gr- strikeouts that you had, you know, the 300 strikeout uh, years. Now, I know some people thought you were wild at times to scare hitters. Was that ever the case? Were you just trying to scare them sometimes? Or do you, did, it was, did you throw a wild pitch just, just to uh, make them think? For, uh, one, do you have one of those ever? Believe it or not, I never did throw any wild pitches. I never did throw in at anyone. And, uh, and I was in baseball. It was none of this was intentional. It wasn't intentional. Well, uh, you, you had him scared, that's for sure. What was the manager that, that you think with the Astros, of the managers that you played for, who got the most out of you? Or was there a coach that you really felt like helped develop your game uh, when you came up to the big league club? I said the pitching coach. I won't say the manager. The pitching coach really helped me. And the guy that I never forget named Hub Kittle. He was with the Astros organization at that time. I don't think I'll forget him as long as I live. Because he was a great guy. He was more of a mentor, maybe more of a father, father figure when I played baseball. Because he and I, we'd, he found time found time to do everything with me. Even shooting pool, which became my, one of my passions later on in life. What's your favorite memory over the course of your career? Maybe it's a game or it's a moment for you. What was your favorite memory from, from uh, playing with the Astros? I said my favorite memory has to be striking out the... Uh, when my major league debut, are striking out the 300 in, uh, in that, I think it was Atlanta Jordan, I'm not sure. Over the course of your time with the Astros, uh, you, you guys built up until that 1980 season. Tell me a little bit about a couple of the guys that uh, really you, you developed friendships with. You talk a lot about you know, what, what Jose Cruz meant to you and Enos Cabell. You talk about that in the book. I said the number one guy on the team was uh, Enos Cabell. Of course, I was friends with all of them, but I think Enos Cabell and I, we hung out more. We've done a lot of things, more more things together than with the rest of the guys on the ball club. So I would say he has to be, he was one of my best friends at that time. To this day, he, you're still very close to Enos Cabell, right? Yes. As we're speaking, it's 35 years ago yesterday was the day that uh, you collapsed in the Astrodome. Do you remember, is there anything that you remember about that? Do you remember 
starting to feel bad or you were having some issues and you and that stuff was going on leading up that few weeks leading up to it. But do you remember much about anything about that day? Well, what I can remember is that I was working out in Astrodome that day and I felt a loud, high-pitched tone ringing. It heard a loud, high-pitched tone ringing in my left ear. Then I got nauseated, laid down on the Astrodome floor, and Wilbur Howard kept, for some reason, he was taking cold towels and putting them on my forehead and kept, kept asking, Jay, are you all right? Jay, are you all right? But I kept thinking, what do you think? What do you think? And next thing I know, I woke up in the hospital with a pretty nurse. <laughs> in the book, you talk about it's, it, it was, it's one of those things that's been really tough because you felt like the Astros, the, the, the doctors and people were not respecting this was serious for you. Something was definitely going on. How long did it take you to kind of get, get over that and feel like I need to move on from that, that unfortunately they didn't recognize it, but, uh, you know, that this is something that I've just got to move forward from. How long did that take? Is that something that you still have to work on on a daily basis today? When I started, really got into the, really, really got into God, the God aspect more, and the Bible says if you don't forgive them, He'll never forgive you. So you know that's one thing that I had must do. And He said, even though I don't care how much people hate you, you have to learn to love them. But He did not say you have to learn to love their ways. And then the the Astros as well. You know, over the years, it seems like it's been good and bad with, with you and the organization. Sometimes there's been some frustrating things. You haven't felt like that the whole organization has respected what you have done over the years. I know you'd still, your dream is still to get your number retired, right? Yes, it would be. And I don't think it's, it's a far out, far fetched dream. I think it's something that, you know, that should be done. You, uh, if it's according to the records that I have, that I have, I think I have the leading record that's and the retired numbers right now. And uh, it doesn't make sense that you can't retire a number and get another number. Do you feel like, in a way, it, you're, you, you're kind of a mythic figure, and that's kind of fun. You know, you're the guy that everybody wants to talk about. Oh, my God, did you ever see J.R. Richard? Well, I think we could all sit back and say, if, shoulda, coulda, woulda, day late, dollar shot. But what's in the past, I'm going to try to leave it in the past and uh, stress, stress myself toward the mark, go toward the future, and leave what's behind me is behind me. And I never had any problem really with Astros. Even though people do what they do to you, you still don't hate them because they done really done. Hate, which is hate is a strong word. You keep on living. Life still goes on. One of the things uh, in the book you said during your playing career that you would feed the homeless when you had the chance. And, you know, you had all of these issues that sort of led up to you becoming homeless. What drew you to the homeless when you played baseball, and how do you think that experience of being homeless yourself changed you as a person? I guess when you're fortunate enough, you have a sense of helping somebody, as I did. I would have a sense of helping somebody who was not as so fortunate at that time. I guess that's one of the major reasons. I guess it's kind of a common, you would say, you help somebody, and then later on you get help yourself. And so that was the situation with myself. That I helped somebody, and I needed help. When I needed help, there were some people there to help me. You've been through so much, more than so many people have been through, and some ups, some great ups, and some great downs. What do you try when you talk to people through your church these days? What's the message that you would like to give to to people uh, about your life and and about trying to overcome what you've had to overcome? Well, the message that I was, I would like to give is that. 
what it says in the Bible. God says, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things, other things will be added up unto you. So I would like to tell people to seek him, seek his face, and then he will reward you greatly. The first game that I ever saw in the Astrodome was J.R. Richard was on the mound. You never forget that. Just want to thank you for all of the Astro fans out there, the great memories that you provided us, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Thank you very much, and it has been a pleasure talking with you. Oh, the legend, J.R. Richard. Oh, it's just so sad. We know he was been in the Hall of Fame. It's just, uh, if you're an Astros fan, it breaks your heart. And despite J.R. not feeling all that great, I, I still think we got some honest thoughts about some of the key moments in his life in our conversation. Don't forget to look for more of our Throwback Thursdays in the archives. But before we close this one out, let's go back to J.R. Richard's one and only all-Star Game start. It was July 8th, 1980, just six days before his stroke. 40 years ago this month, he threw two scoreless innings, and you're about to hear every one of the highlights of every out as called by two broadcasting legends, Keith Jackson and Howard Cosell. And on the mound from the Houston Astros, James Rodney Richard. Richard with a record of 10 and 4. He comes in, however, after struggling in his last couple of starts. He has been experiencing stiffness in his right forearm. He uses the word fatigue to describe it into a high blue sky. On the ground to Davy Lopes. A big hop for him, and Willie Randolph is up. Oh, that's true. 2-1 pitch to Lynn. He can now pick up Carew with a base hit. Hits it to the right side. Moves Carew over. Lopes throws to Garvey. Two out. 3-2 coming. Pitch chases him. He's out. He wanted to fake it for a minute, and then he decided he couldn't. A two-strike pitch to Fisk. goes. Nettles hops it up. Foul ground. Third base side. Ken Reitz. Two down. Steve's gone. And so the American League is turned away in the top of the second inning. Stranding two. After one and a half in this 1980 All-Star game, there is no score. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.